Hi, everybody. We are live on Fireside today. I am so excited. Uh, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. I am so excited for today's show because it really feels in so many ways like the merger of everything that I think about in my life, and here it is for you for you all to hear about. So today I have Al Powers and Brittany Quagan on the show. Al is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist who is passionate about understanding human experience and building bridges to help us empathize with each other's experiences. The way he chooses to build these bridges is by viewing experiences like hearing or seeing things other people don't on the same spectrum with everyday perceptual experiences. He believes that by understanding perception, we can begin to help normalize experiences and decrease the stigma and dysfunction they sometimes carry. Dr. Powers has an MD, PhD from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. After completing the PhD phase of his training, he returned to medical school and began working with Dr. Philip Corlett on computational models of delusion formation. He recently founded the COPE Project, which he is here to talk about today. Brittany began hearing voices when she was about 15 years old. She experiences these voices as spirit guides. Along with the voices of spirit came an influx of distressing experiences such as anxiety, panic attacks, depression, health paranoia, and suicidality. She didn't know what was happening and didn't know what she was hearing. Brittany self-medicated with substances and alcohol because in those moments, the voices and other uncomfortable sensations were too much for her. Today, 11 years later, she is still a psychic medium and also a therapist at the Prime Clinic, Al's lab manager, and the owner of Healing and Spiritual of a Healing and Spiritual Development Center. She works alongside Al as co-director of the Spirit Alliance, a consortium of psychic mediums, spiritual communities, therapists, neuroscientists, and people with mental illness to work as a team to understand these perceptual experiences to create better, more person-centered treatments through the COPE Project. Welcome, Al and Brittany. If you haven't subscribed to my newsletter yet, please go to DrAmyRobbins.com and go ahead and subscribe. Every other week, I send out guided insights called Soul Wisdoms and also give you a little sneak peek as to what's on the show, what you can hear coming up on wherever you get your podcasts and also what you can join me live on Fireside for. So Fireside is a platform where you can come on, the audience can ask questions and participate in my show. Also, if you haven't been had a chance to check out my Patreon page, just go to Patreon and put in my name, Amy Robbins, and you can see the different levels. If you become a subscriber to uh, any of that, then there's little added bonuses that you get at each level, 5, 10, and 20, or whatever you can to support the show. Thank you all for your support and enjoy the show. Thank you. That was a heck of an intro. That was great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I have anything to add. <laughs> Thanks. I guess, guess we can sign guys. off. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> nice to talk to you guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your time today. So we chatted before, and I'm so excited to chat with you both today. Can you sort of take us through, let's start with Brittany and kind of how this got started, because I, I the title of this podcast is A Medium Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office. But mm-hmm. That's sort of what happened. Exactly what happened. <laughs> Um, so I'm trying to think where I can pick up from the the amazing bio that you just shared. Um, so yes, I'm a voice here and I see all of my perceptual experiences, both with, um, 
voices and uh, more of the sensory experiences that I have as an empath. So the things that I feel and get overwhelmed with as far as energy goes, um, all of those things I see uh, as a spiritual experience. And that's something that I really came into as a belief system. I want to say about uh, how old am I now? It had to have been like over 10 years ago now. Um, and prior to learning about spirituality and that this was even, you know, that energy, for example, was something that you could even connect to that you could learn about that you could work with or that people actually talked about. Um, for me, everything was related to mental health or something wrong with my health. It was a very, you know, I'm feeling this thing. I'm hearing this thing. I'm experiencing this thing. It's my anxiety. It's my depression. It's my, all my issues. Like, it, it was always associating it with that. Um, and when I met this woman who I'm still very good friends with today, she, she really opened my eyes to this whole new world of spirituality. And I thought it was just something really cool that people did in like movies and in like Harry Potter and that you couldn't actually, you know, talk to dead people or have spirit guides or, or manifest things. And that was life changing for me because it really brought me from this place of seeing my experiences as something bad and that I needed to change as something that I could embrace and learn about myself and learn about the way that I view the world and learn about how to actually work within those experiences and grow from them. Um, and when I, learned these things and my anxiety subsided uh, tremendously and and I had way more control over my experiences. I wasn't, you know, sitting there at work and like you know, freaking out and like, oh, is it a heart attack or like, is it a brain aneurysm or like, what am I feeling? What am I hearing? Um, and I gained that control over it. I was like, holy shit. If this is something that I can learn to do and feel well within this framework, how many other people have these experiences and are struggling and they're on meds and the meds aren't working or they're in therapy. And, you know, the particular, um, like form of therapy isn't really working for them or they feel misunderstood or they feel crazy. How many more people could learn this control or learn these skills like meditation and mindfulness and actually, feel well with it and, and do something with it. And I, I made it sort of this, this was my goal. Now I want to help people to heal. And so that's what I decided to do. And I opened up my little shop and while I was there, um, I decided to get my degree as a therapist and as, uh, any therapist or clinician knows you need hours and you need um, experience if you're going to graduate and and not experience being a medium, not experience. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> they had no time for that. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I needed like actual clinical experience and just prior to getting uh, my degree and actually even starting school for, for therapy, I had participated in a study that Al had going on. Uh, on voice hearers um, and the difference between people who are, you know, non-clinical voice hearers, which he found us in the spiritual community and people who have been in the system before because of their voice hearing experiences. And I had never been diagnosed with psychosis. I had never been, I never even brought up voice hearing to my therapist so or my doctor because I knew damn well what that would mean. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. I knew I would have this diagnosis potentially. And I wasn't about that. Um, but that's how I had met Al and quite literally walked into the psychiatrist's office on a locked unit of, of an inpatient unit. Um, and he interviewed me about my voice hearing experiences. And I remember my friends and family being like, are you going to be able to leave? Right. Um, cause you're going to a psych unit right now and talking about hearing voices. Um, I let you go though. He did, and he paid me. <laughs> I did pay. I paid. <laughs> he continued to. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, because once the clinical hours thing came about, my voice is actually my my guides, as I like to call them, were the ones who were like, you should contact Al Powers. And I was like, who the hell is that? Because I didn't really remember. <laughs> Sorry, Al. And so I sent him an email and I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, you got anything going on there? And we connected. We went and got donuts um, and some coffee. And he he was like, how about we work on this study together? And I was just like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and the rest is kind of history. I'll let so, Al. Yeah, yeah. So, Al, how does a psychiatrist trained at Vanderbilt working at Yale come to discuss sort of these concepts with your colleagues? Um, I mean, I have a list of other questions about diagnoses and all that, but I'm just really curious how you came into this world, because you weren't here in Spirit Guides. No, I wasn't. Um, I did have my own unusual experiences. I had some hypnagogic hallucinations when I was a teenager, and I always think that, you know, is it a complete accident that I now try to help young people who are having terrifying perceptual experiences? Probably not a complete accident. Um, But was it directly related to this? Probably not. I I think the, the tradition I'm coming from and this actually really kind of brought me to psychiatry in the first place, is trying to understand how we perceive the world. This is like where I started. My first love is really trying to understand how we perceive things in general, in, like outside of psychiatric illness, just trying to understand. I remember being in the AP psychology class in high school at North Bedford High School, go T-Birds, um, and, uh, and heard, um, uh, and, and going to the chapter, I think it was a chapter three in the, in the, in the textbook about how neurons encoded things like, you know, light and sound. And I was like, this is so interesting. Like, you mean the things that I'm seeing, like, we know how that works a little bit. Like we actually know how, you know, that information is somehow brought into the brain. That's really fascinating. And I remember being really struck by that. And my teacher even like being somewhat amused by the fact that I was the only one who found this interesting. And, um, and then I went to college at Yale and I, and I, and I remember being just kind of just drawn to perceptual neuroscience and trying to understand again, how we perceive things in general. And, um, I talked about my grad school years and I always thought I was, I was going to be you know, doing something in the brain because like, that's what I was interested in is like trying to understand how the brain does stuff. Right. And, and so being someone who had never, you know, been in contact with a psychiatrist before, um, or knew anything at all about psychiatry, I thought it was going to be a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. Like for, in, actually I was, I was student interest group and neurology leader in, at Vanderbilt for like five years or something like that during my time there. And then I hit surgery and realized very quickly I was not a surgeon. Um, and, and then very, very quickly thereafter realized I probably wasn't really necessarily a neurologist, but I was going to probably go into neurology anyway, because what else was I going to do? And wasn't even considering psychiatry. I hit the wards at Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital, and I was in the psychosis unit. And I um, was just floored by the fact that you know, the things I was seeing were things that we could understand using neuroscience. There are things that we could understand about how the brain was processing information in people. And people weren't even necessarily even talking about it that way. But I knew that there was potential. And the reason why I wanted to to be a physician scientist, why I wanted to be an MD, PhD in the first place, was to be able to take those insights and make a difference in in how we actually practice medicine. And uh, it turns out psychiatry was the place where I thought we could best do that. I remember meeting a young man, he was 18 years old, who was on the unit, who, um, who... had been super popular in high school, was head of the soccer team, or captain soccer team, head of his class, tons of friends. And then like two months before I, I had uh, seen him on the unit, he started um, isolating in his room, being extra suspicious of people. And um, and by the time I had seen him, he was, he was fully convinced that everybody he saw was a robot except for himself. Everybody's an imposter. Um, and I remember seeing his Maybe dad. Maybe we are. Maybe we are. I mean, I'm, no one's told me yet. I guess it's hard to test. Um, but, but, you know, but when, but when his dad came in, I remember his dad trying to see him and he wouldn't see his dad because he was convinced that he was, a, he was an imposter. 
And it was like the most heartbreaking thing. Like it was the most dramatic medical thing I'd ever seen as a medical student. Um, like just the most um, life shattering experience that a person had, had gone through before my eyes. And, and there, I don't know if this is your experience when I've worked with um, patients who have psychosis. They draw you into their like their delusions and their hallucinations can have the potential to be so powerful. And they are so steadfast in their belief system about it that you're like, wow, like, could it be? I've definitely had that. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm, absolutely. And in some ways, you know, trying to understand, we're all trying to understand the world and we're never certain about those, about those assumptions that we make and, and the conclusions we draw. Um, about the world and of course yeah it's it's I, I try to be I try to pride myself in being an open-minded person um, but in that case it was mostly just I was struck by you know how devastating it was for that family and I wanted to try to make a difference there and 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 studying perception was one way to do it this all this young man was also hearing voices that were telling him everyone was an imposter um, and so trying to understand that within the realm of perception which I just spent like the last three or four years trying to understand from a brain level uh, made a lot of sense and when I came to re- Yale back, back to Yale for residency and worked with um, with uh, Phil Corlett um, about delusions and then moved my kind of expertise in, in sensory neuroscience into that study um, um, we came up with the with the experiment that we did together and trying to understand that from a perspective is normal perception. Trying to understand if if we understand perception correctly, which we might not, uh, as you point out, like nobody really knows. Um, but if we understand per- perception correctly, it's it's very possible to kind of imagine and understand how um, you can tweak that system just a little bit and have the same experience that my patients do or that other people who have unusual experiences, uh, extraordinary experiences do. Um, and um, that itself should be non-stigmatizing. That should be an exper- a way of understanding people's experiences across the full breadth of human experience um, because we all use the same mechanisms and, um, and uh, we all have the same way of inferring what's around us. And I'm hoping, I'm ho- I hope that the understanding that from a neuroscience level um, will allow us to be uh, to destigmatize those experiences as much as possible. So, how do you differentiate between an auditory hallucination versus voice hearing? Yeah, so you know, I should be clear on these terms before I use them. I guess so. So, yeah, so auditory hallucinations, you know, traditionally within psychiatry and neuroscience, have been you know percepts like things that you perceive in the absence of a corresponding external stimulus. Yeah, it's something that is happening in the outside world causing you to, to, to hear that thing. So that in and of itself kind of, you know, implies a certain worldview, right? Like you have to like, essentially, if nothing is actually out there, that's something that you, who determines that. Um, but so there's that. And, you know, and what is, is out exactly there? That. And what is out there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, where is out there? There's all sorts of stuff that's built into that. Right. Um, but that is the traditional kind of definition of, of uh, auditory hallucination with the other kind of added components that actually, interestingly enough, there are three added components to that one is that it has, um, it has no external stimulus, right. Uh, that corresponds to it. Right. I just mentioned that the second one is that it has the full force and reality of an actual percept, like meaning like, you know, if I'm hearing someone talk to me, it sounds like someone's talking to me. Like it sounds like, like almost like it has the full effect of that. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> which sometimes can be true, sometimes it can't be true, sometimes it's not true. Um, and the third one that was added actually in the mid 80s, mid to late 80s, um, by a, a few people who were trying to differentiate and define hallucinations as best they could, um, given the fact that you know some people had disorders that were neurologically based and were not necessarily hallucinations or kind of more illusions and things like that. But the third requirement that I had was that it was outside of voluntary control. Um, that they could not be voluntarily influenced. Um, we don't think those second and third ones are actually true. Um, but those are that's how auditory hallucinations um, kind of are traditionally um, defined. And then voice hearing, you know, are just is just what it sounds like. It's like without without the the caveat, without that 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 you know, we have to judge whether something is actually happening outside of you or not, or someone or who has to judge that. It's it's is someone hearing a voice. Period. And oftentimes people do. You know, they identify as voice hearers. Brittany just did at the beginning of this interview mm-hmm. as someone who hears voices, period. Um, and whether that is um, whether that is from somewhere that, you know, I recognize as being real or not, doesn't matter. Um, it's it, the experience itself of hearing voices um, is what was what matters. Um, and so uh, oftentimes the people we work with identify as voice hearers because it doesn't have 
within it any judgment about whether it's real or not. It's the experience that re- that is real and the experience that matters. Um, and that's um, that's kind of where we're coming from. And I know you don't study this, but are there other people studying visual hallucinations and clairvoyance simultaneously? Totally. Yeah, we do that too, a little bit, actually. We have a visual version of, of the task that I d- devised um, to try to understand the perceptual kind of underpinnings of, of visual um, experiences as well. Um, yeah, so like, yeah, people are interested in that too. I am too. The reason why we focus on auditory is that in psychosis, you know, the most common experience that is often the most distressing and actually does lead to bad clinical outcomes sometimes like the presence of auditory hallucinations alone increases your risk for suicide for example within within psychosis um uh, those are most common and most impactful so we want to start there so how my question Brittany, as you were talking you never you never told anyone you were hearing voices mm-hmm. you never uh were hospitalized for mm-hmm. it you were medicated. It didn't mm-hmm. stop. Is there a difference when you see someone who's medicated for schizophrenia ver- or psychosis, any type of psychosis, versus uh, voice hearing? Like, does the medication work or not work? Is it more effective or less effective? And how would that, what implications could that potentially have in terms of like knowing, okay, is this schizophrenia in the way that we have historically thought about it, a brain disorder versus, I don't know what the verses would be. You could probably tell me what the verses would be versus someone who has the ability to connect to uh, other energies, the other side, spirit guides, angels, whatever it might be. Um, before I answer, well, I'm probably going to have Al answer more about the, the med stuff because that's real his that's his world. That's his wheelhouse. Um, but I think it's important to know a couple of things about my experience. The first is I was never on an antipsychotic. I was on medication for anxiety and depression because that's what my doctor diagnosed me with at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not stop any of my experiences from happening. Um, and the other thing is, is my voices were never problematic for me. Mm-hmm. So they never increased my anxiety, increased my depression, caused me any form of suicidal ideation. It's for me, my voices were actually life saving because when I had suicidal thoughts, my voices were the ones saying like, no, no, you have you, like this life to live. You have things to do. Um, and and kept me from really feeling alone and like I needed to actually kill myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those things are important to note because a lot of people we see are distressed by their voices are on antipsychotics or should be on antipsychotics. And mm-hmm. none of that was part of my experience. Gotcha. Um, it was Do always very positive people for me. who have had positive experiences and on and are on antipsychotics because Mm -hmm. they shared that this was happening to them and so bam you get prescribed an antipsychotic you get hospitalized whatever it is and then it's it's actually once you learn to manage it can be quite positive yeah so so there are lots of people actually i I would say if if i'm if i'm understanding the, the literature correctly most people who have auditory hallucinations even in psychosis have a mixture of positive and negative experiences um, mm-hmm. there, in fact, that, that can sometimes be a barrier to even them wanting to take medications in the first place because mm-hmm. they actually have positive voices too, that they don't want to get rid of. Um, and, um, and that, that is something that should be recognized and is underrecognized in the field. And so when they are medicated, does that quiet the voices typically if you're a voice hearer versus full bone schizophrenia? Um, I don't know. So, so that's a really good question. I would say people with psychosis describe response to antipsychotics being something like, you know, um, I have heard them describe it as the voices become quieter or sound like they're farther away or can't quite make out what they're saying. Sometimes it's a bad thing, like I said, and sometimes it's a good thing. Um, and they sometimes will say that they're able to ignore them a little more easily. Um, these are kind of common responses to antipsychotics within the context of, of voice hearing. Um, in terms of 
people who are non-clinical or non-treatment-seeking voice hearers, by definition, they're non-treatment-seeking. I don't want to treat them um, and because um, they, they don't need it. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and psychotic medications, as, as, as I, I think they can do a lot of good, and I've seen them do a lot of good, they're not harmless. They're not completely um, risk-free, and they can do some bad stuff too. And so I have no interest in giving anybody in psychotics who don't uh, need them. Um, so, um, I would, if I had to, if I had to like do the thought experiment as to whether or not someone would have the same responses to antipsychotics, if they were a non-clinical voice hearer, um, I would say, um, I would say they probably, probably would based upon what we understand about the neural mechanisms underlying those things. And, you know, when people, for example, who have non-clinical voice hearing experiences get into the MRI scanner and press buttons when they're hearing them, see, you see very similar brain regions, um, light up as, as people who have psychosis and voice hearing experiences. Um, you know, our studies have shown that there's, um, there's very similar kind of computational underpinnings, um, to those experiences as well. Um, there are some differences, but not, not all, uh, not many, um, really when it comes down to it. Um, so I think, um, I would expect that if you are interacting with the brain in a way that makes you less likely to hear those voices or make them sound like they're farther away and things, I imagine those things would also pertain to non-clinical voice hearers, even though I don't think it's an ethical thing to do. So the COPE project is about having control over the perceptual experiences. So mm-hmm. how do you define versus, I mean, you also talk about control over hallucinations and control over perceptual experiences. So mm-hmm. you've talked a little bit about how you differentiate those two, but how do you, how do you control that? Yeah, that's like the you know, multi-million dollar question. Brett, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you uh, take that one, definitely. Um, very good question. This is the thing we're really trying to answer. Um, but based on, I mean, I can only really speak from my experience, but we've also interviewed dozens and dozens of people who had these experiences, both who see them from a spiritual lens and people who have been um, in the psychiatric system and diagnosed with a psychotic disorder, um, and all of whom have control over their experiences. And it's pretty cool because there's quite an overlap between both communities. Uh, you see very similar techniques in both communities to have control over these experiences. But I think first, you know, the most important thing that we hear from everybody, including myself, is normalization. First and foremost, being able to normalize the person's experience just because this is happening does not mean you're crazy. It's not the experience itself, but what you make of it and what you do about it. Um, And meeting other people who have these experiences, it could be life changing to meet a person or multiple people who have experiences similar to yours and see that they're doing well, live in their life. And it's like, oh, wow, I can I can have a normal life if this thing is happening to me and feel like you have somebody to talk to who is not going to judge you about the experience, but you can just sort of share in that shared experience um, is huge. So it's first about like how you set up the, the appropriate support systems for yourself in having the experience, which is community and normalization. And then the next thing is really engaging with the experience. What, what is this experience like for you? If you have these voices, what do they want? Talk back. What, what do they say? Uh, could it have some deeper meaning for an experience that you're having right now? Um, and, and how to, I like to create meaning with, with the experiences that I have. And I feel that that has really been helpful for a lot of people, including myself. Mm -hmm. Um, so engagement, um, let me think what else personally, I, I hear a lot about mindfulness and, and meditation, especially from the spiritual community, grounding, being able to ground oneself and ground oneself in the experience. Um, so you're coming from a more grounded place when you are engaging with the voices or with any experience. Like for me, when I feel stuff, I get like wicked overwhelmed. So it's like, I need to get grounded to really feel out what it is that, um, I'm experiencing energetically, if you will, like this morning, totally bugging me out with this eclipse. I'll tell you that right now. I had like a borderline panic attack earlier. Um, 
so yeah, engagement, normalization, community, groundedness, um, meditation, mindfulness. Um, and a lot of people use techniques that are more like, let me distract myself and, and focus on something else, which for me has also been helpful at times. Um, but it's really using a mix of a lot of different techniques and, and what works for one person doesn't always work for another. So it's like any type of therapy, really, and therapeutic techniques that you use with people, like what's going to work for you and then experimenting with it and playing around with it. But I think having the appropriate support in place is huge um, and people who are not going to make you feel judged or stigmatized while you're working through it. Well, and it's so interesting because you all are talking about kind of shutting down the voices, shutting down the connection in some way. And I often have people who reach out to me from the podcast saying, I want to be more connected to the voices, right? I want to be able to connect to spirit guides and loved ones and all of these pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's the same methodology for whichever you're doing in a lot of ways, right? Like you yep. had a spiritually... Um, you had like a spontaneous, this experience for you was spontaneous. You weren't necessarily inviting it in, but now so many more people are wanting to be able to have these experiences to open themselves up. And I wonder, I'm curious, like what, if the brain in an MRI would look different for that, would it look the same for people who are trying to control their ability to open up versus it just being spontaneous? I'm going to come run your lab. No, I mean, yeah, no, come, come, come join us. <laughs> um, we, we love, we love good ideas. Actually, that is an idea that we are, are actively testing. So we uh, put in a grant just Monday, nearly killed me. Um, but, <laughs> but we put in a grant just Monday um, looking at um, exactly that question. So what is the brain doing when someone is turning their voices on versus off? Like, how is that working? And do you see the same um, activity patterns that you'd see when someone is like, just pressing a button and what, what parts of the, are, of the brain um, are active when they're hearing the voices versus when they're trying to control the voices and the, the parts of the brain that we're seeing in a group of a small group of five people that we ran um, you know make a lot of sense actually the regions that you're seeing when people are pressing buttons when they're hearing voices in the context of, um, of these unusual experiences who are non-clinical voice hearers um, look exactly like the ones that you would expect to, 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 to light up when you when you look at voice hearing in general. And the areas that are involved in turning the voices off um, are involved in general kind of cognitive control. These are like areas like dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which are involved is involved in like executive control and executive function, like kind of making sure that you um, keep things kind of um, in order and planned and things um, and inhibited when you need to inhibit. Um, so those are, those are areas that kind of make sense with regard to, um, uh, to controlling voice hearing. But I want to say too, also that, you know, you might've gotten this from what Brittany just said about her experiences, but, um, you know, control is, is we have a love hate relationship with the word control because I think it makes, um, sense to a lot of people, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to some other, other people and particularly people who have lived experience because in a lot of ways it's about the relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's about developing a relationship with your voices and engaging with them um, in such a way that they um, that you can draw boundaries that are that are kind of I guess for want of a better word mutually beneficial that you can um, that you trust that the voices are going to not like bother you when you're having a podcast interview um, mm-hmm. that you know that they're not going to bug you when you're trying to you know do your schoolwork or um, or um, you know, do your job or take care of your kids, and so these are um, those are the kinds of things that people really describe. And so the process for developing that relationship and engaging with the voices in such a way that they will respect those boundaries is, I think, the crux of the matter. And trying to really understand how that happens um, is, uh, is is part of the work that we're trying to do for the next probably a couple of decades. So, yeah. so it's so amazing that it even started. So when you hear someone like Brittany say she hears voices and they're spirit guides in your mind, conceptually, what does that mean to you? Um, to me, what that means is that I have you laughing? an extremely talented lab manager. Um, <laughs> um, um, no, I mean, I think for, for me, what, what, what that, what that means is that she's here having experience. She's, she's hearing, her, um, she's hearing her guides. I mean, like I take that literally at face value where that she, that is what she's hearing and that she's interpreting that. 
um, in a way that means that she's um, that that means something particular to her. It doesn't mean that she's you know um, distressed by that. She doesn't mean that she's she, that's causing her any dysfunction. In fact, actually, a letter to me, so I'm quite grateful for that experience. Um, and um, so you know, I, I, in general, divorcing the um, the experience itself from the way that it impacts someone's life is an important thing to do. <clears throat> and um, divorcing that experience and, and accepting that um, the voices are real, like the experiences themselves are real, which is a, a saying that um, our colleagues in the um, Hearing Voices movement say all the time, the voices are real, because you know it, they deserve to be taken seriously as real human experiences, as real as anybody else's. And um, the, the impact of those experiences is what really matters, um, how much it's disrupting you know, your life. If you come to me and you have voices that are disrupting your life, I'm going to want to help you. You know, but not otherwise. What are your colleagues saying about this work? Um, I don't know. I, mean, I think I think in general um, they're very supportive. Um, in general, Yale is like um, I, I think we're, we're privileged in a lot of ways, and and one one privilege is that we're at Yale, um, and it's and it's a wonderful psychiatry department. It has a great tradition of of doing science that is you know well very scientifically based um very biologically oriented psychiatry in general um and we come at it from a very biological orientation um and so i think in that way you know we haven't you know gotten all that much flack about it um and, but in addition to that we come from a tradition here where people kind of try to really critically think about the role of psychiatry in people's lives and our patients' lives. There's a whole wing of the psychiatry department here um, at Yale who um, uh, called the, um, uh, oh, what is, um, it's, 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 uh, it's head, headed by um, a number of people over at the Community Engagement Center. Um, but they're, they're part of the critical psychiatry movement where they are interested in, in trying to understand you know, how psychiatry has done not just good, but a lot of harm over the, over the course of years. And this is a whole wing of the psychiatry department. Wow. Um, and so what we're trying to understand really is how to make the field better. And that comes from all sorts of different angles. And, um, you know, we have people who um, have been, you know, very supportive of our work. Some people have kind of looked a little bit more askance at it. But I think in general, we've gotten a lot of support and gotten a lot of support from our department chair and John Crystal and, and from, you know, others in terms of funding agencies um, I think they think it's important work. Well, and there's clearly money available. I mean, if you're writing grants for it, there's money out there that people are curious about this. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we'll find out if it gets funded. But yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, think, I think in general people are interested and curious. Um, you know, the idea, this is actually, you know, building upon years and years and years and years and years of, um, of work that's been done by epidemiologists in Europe, for example, a guy named Jim Van Oss first came up with the idea that, oh, you know, psychosis is not just like this all, all or none kind of like, you know, binary phenomenon. There's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of, of experiences across the whole population. And, and that's led to work that is now generally accepted that there are a lot of people walking around the general population. About 13% of the general population has psychotic-like experiences. What does that even mean? Uh, when it when it comes to when it comes to uh, understanding and diagnosing psychosis, it means that we need to expand our definition of psychosis and expand our definition of what is possible in human experience. That's what it means. That was one of my questions: was Do you think that we're going to eventually move towards the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical <laughs> Manual? Yeah, Statistical Manual of Disorders that we all use to kind of talk to each other about you know, oh, this person's schizophrenic or, oh, they're depressed, right? It's a list of symptoms that help us communicate with each other. I always think it's nothing more than that, frankly, um, because we all come to each experience with our own experiences, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. do you think that eventually this disorder and possibly all of them in some regards end up moving towards more of a spectrum-like disorder, like autism or something, which is now on a spectrum? Yes. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. Can, um, yeah, if you'll indulge me a small story. Um, <laughs> um, so there's a, um, there's a colleague of mine, a, a mentor really, um, here at Yale who is, um, 
uh, Godfrey Perlson, who is this great guy, he's been around forever, and has done some really great work, particularly on the spectrum of psych- uh, psychotic disorders. And he has this great analogy. And the way he usually says it is, is this. There used to be this disease called dropsy. Brittany's heard this like 10 times more, probably. 100, maybe. Um, there used to be this 200. disease called dropsy. Have you, maybe 200. Um, have, you heard, have you heard of dropsy before? Have I? Yeah. I feel like this is a joke. No, not a joke. Oh. I promise. Not a joke. This is true. <laughs> okay. This is like a state-of-the-art medicine turn of the, the 20th century. So no. there used to be a disease called dropsy. There's a reason you hadn't heard of it. Here's what, how you would get dropsy. Is uh, you would go into the doctor's office and you would, uh, you know, have these certain sem- set of symptoms. You would have swollen ankles. You would have a hard time breathing. It'd be difficult for you to get around. Um, you cough up some stuff, and the doctor would look at you and say, "Well, sounds like it's probably dropsy. You met with these three criteria. You know, I'm going to give you this medication that we know some people with dropsy respond to. It's called foxglove. It's a foxglove extra extract. It's from this plant, foxglove." And 30% of people will respond to foxglove if you have dropsy. And so people would take it, and 30% of people will respond to it, and that's pretty much where they were at. That was the state of the art um, uh, in terms of internal medicine in you know, 1910. And, um, but as people started learning more and more about how the different body systems can break down to give you dropsy, which is really just fluid overload, like too much fluid in your body, um, turns out you can get dropsy from like kidney failure, you can get it from heart failure, you can get it from pulmonary failure, you can get it from liver failure, you know, from a bunch of different organ systems that are breaking down. And um, the interesting thing about this is that the people who responded to Foxglove were the ones who had congestive heart failure. And they were the ones who, uh, so Foxglove is uh, the basis of Digitalis, which is a, a medication that makes your heart pump better. Um, and so by understanding how you got to that point, how you got to having dropsy in the first place, made people realize that, well, you know what, actually dropsy doesn't exist. As an entity, it does not exist. Um, it's a, what it is, is a final collection of symptoms that are arrived at because of a bunch of different pathways. And um, schizophrenia is dropsy. It doesn't exist. Not, not, not as a singular entity. Um, it is a final set of symptoms that is arrived at by systems in the brain that we don't quite understand yet in terms of how they're breaking down. And um, auditory hallucinations are, are maybe sometimes part of that in combination with other deficits that can cause you know, dysfunction um, uh, and, and can be compensated for. So I think what we're eventually going to be moving toward is understanding, just as we have for the rest of the body, a way the ways that the brain can kind of um, be altered to give you that final set of symptoms and we can intervene specifically um, to address those those kind of um, those root causes. So you look at it very much from like a brain perspective, but how do you think that it could open us up to expansiveness of consciousness or understanding consciousness in this way? Because is is what Brittany experiences more of an expansion of consciousness versus someone with a diagnosis of schizophrenia and any psychotic disorder, uh, brain disorder. Why are those different? Because they've been... um, (laughs) (laughs) This whole episode is... (laughs) (laughs) No, really. I mean, like, so, you know, I I don't Well, I guess that gets into, like, what is the brain and what constitutes the brain versus what constitutes the mind. Yeah, absolutely. It gets into all sorts of philosophy of of mind kind of questions. But when it comes down to it, um, I don't see any... um, I don't see any reason to think that um, all of human experience can't be understood through the brain. I don't understand uh, necessarily how an expansion of consciousness wouldn't be housed necessarily through the brain either, or not necessarily through the brain itself, but through like the way the brain processes information. And so it's, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, I think that they might be the same thing, whether that makes it less magical or not. I don't know. I don't (laughs) think so. Um, I'm, I'm inclined to think it's a pretty damn magical process in general, whether it's housed in the brain or not. Um, right. and I mean, the brain is pretty magical. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So. Then and we don't know so much about how it works even. That's true. Yes, very true. <laughs> so, so the last thing, I, I pulled this out of your one of your papers, which is that 
this is, I thought this was really interesting that part, participants who developed a spiritual explanatory framework were more likely to exert control over the voice hearing experiences than those that developed a pathologizing framework. Importantly, despite clear differences in explanatory framework and distress because of their experiences, both groups underwent similar trajectories to develop control and acceptance over their voice hearing experiences. Understanding these factors will be critical in transforming control over voice hearing experiences from a phenomenological observation to an actionable route for clinical intervention. So translation, how do we help people maybe see these experiences as spiritual opportunities for growth? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the observation that, that that sentence kind of comes from is that, you know, people who have, who interpreted their experiences spiritually did better, right? And one question that even before we get toward intervention is why? Why is that the case? Like, why is that that, that believing that you're hearing from your guides is better than thinking that you're hearing from the devil or from the FBI or something else that might cause you dysfunction? And I think inherent in that sentence is the answer, which is that, you know, it's much easier to to kind of approach and negotiate with and develop a relationship with your guides than it is with the devil or with the FBI who's trying to harm you. I think it, those belief those beliefs themselves allow you to engage with and and go through the process of of um, of developing some agency over those experiences. They allow you to. Um, to kind of get control of them with these common mechanisms that we just talked about, um, that people with clinical and non-clinical voice hearing experiences kind of go through in, in common. Um, and that is based in engagement. Um, and so the question is, how do we translate that? Not necessarily with saying like, hey, you know, you are having a spiritual experience. And so therefore, you know, um, you, you're going to go ahead and do better. Like you learn that this is actually spiritual. That's not really, I don't think, where we're going to go. What I think it's going to be is that, you are going to have um, a way to engage with the voices in some way, or, or with those experiences, or maybe even, um, or maybe with the idea of having voices in a way that is not threatening and allows you to go through that process of growth and negotiation. Um, uh, that's where I would see it going. Um, but yeah, and sorry, just to I mean, add, yep. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No. Um, I think it's less about seeing it as whether or not it's spiritual and then seeing it from a framework that's going to be empowering. Like if you're feeling like the devil is talking to you all the time, you're going to feel like you have power over that. Or if like the FBI is out to get you and going to harm you, like, dude, they got way more power than us. (laughs) Like you're not going to feel empowered in that framework. So I think, as far as developing a treatment goes, it's more about finding what's going to empower people. And for a lot of people that can be spirituality, but then we also want to take into consideration, like there's a lot of people who aren't spiritual out there who have these experiences and we can't force spirituality on them. So I think it's more about empowerment and, and what's going to make somebody feel good and strong and capable and normal and know that they're just experiencing being a fucking human, which is really hard in general, um, than it is about saying, like, this is spirit or this is your consciousness, like, opening up. Because some people aren't going to be down with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're going to be like, that's not my thing. Well, and I think it's, you know, what you said, what I read could be applied to any clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. It's like how you view the experience of it. Absolutely. Shifts how you respond to it. That's absolutely yep. true. It's yep. how we view being human and how yep. we view like any experience we have as a person. If you're dating someone and they cheat on you and you see this as like, I can never trust anybody again. My life is over. Right. Screw this people. This always happens to me. This always happens Every to me. I'm in a relationship. You're never going to date. But <laughs> if you see it as like, oh, sweet move that one out the way this glad I figured this one out right now. And you're approaching it from a more positive or neutral place. You can move through a human experience relationships a lot more healthfully. Mm-hmm. Is that a word? Healthfully. Um, sure. So I think it applies to everything all the time. So we're all good. It's <laughs> way to be, but yeah, I think it's, it's 
something we can apply to every experience as a human. And it's, it's something that we need to do in mental health in general is to humanize these experiences a little more. So if people want to hear, I'm going to open it up for questions because we're on fireside. So if anybody who is in the audience, which is very small today, um, <laughs> wants to ask a question, that would be Mark. Um, please Hi, Mark. raise Hi, your hand. Come on, Mark. Hey, Mark. Um, if, but in the meantime, can you let us know where people can learn about the work you're doing? Because you do interview. I mean, you do take participants. This one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, it is. If you just Google the Yale Cope Project, C O P E Project, you will find our webpage, which is spirit.yale.edu. Uh, there you um, go. But uh, if, even if you just Google Yale Cope, that's probably the. Uh, actually, honestly, I actually have to do that every time. So, like, <laughs> so just Google the Cope pro- Yale Cope Project. C O P E, not K. Yes. Um, <laughs> And it, it stands for control over perceptual experiences, right? That's right. Yes. That's right. And we're pretty um, reachable and approachable. So even if you don't want to participate, you can hit us up anytime. We're always down to have a good conversation. Absolutely. I mean, we get so many emails all the time. We're, we're more, I and mean, we love it. I mean, I love hearing from people. So yeah, anytime. It's albert.powers at yale.edu. Please. Yeah, and you both are phenomenal. Like, this is the second time we've talked. I'm, like, trying to come up with why I can have a third time to talk to you both. We love do it. It. I mean, you don't need an excuse. We'd be happy to do it. So. Love. Next time, let's do a seance with Al. That sounds great. <laughs> we could totally do, maybe I'll do, like, an ongoing once-a-month fireside chat once this gets up and running called Seances with Al. That sounds great. Oh, it's amazing. I'm, I'm totally into that. That sounds awesome. Um, I would love it. I would love it. <laughs> okay, we're revisiting this, Brittany. Yes, we are. <laughs> Thank um, Mark or anybody else in the audience, which is Mark. Um, <laughs> uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. Otherwise, thank you both, and thank we'll you. be in touch. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This is wonderful. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.